there, everyone. It is the Then Again podcast from the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Glenn, and I have with me today, again, the fantastic medieval professor, Dr. Thomas Green. Thank you for joining us again. Oh, thank you for having me back. So, you know, it was great talking to you last time, and people have already commented that I yelled in the microphone a little too excitedly when I knew that you had played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid and all that sort of thing. And because, you know, all the cool people did, at least that's yeah. what we tell ourselves now. Well, it's, <laughs> it's funny. They're cool now, but it's fascinating to see gamer culture kind of enter the mainstream. Yeah, not just the mainstream, but the cool mainstream, right? Yeah. People don't realize that folks like you and I got beat up at recess so that they can enjoy the world that gives them everything they want. You're welcome, exactly. world. Yes. <laughs> you know, medieval professor, and this you and I have talked a little bit about this too, being lovers of the period has made us research into it in far greater depth than the average layperson. And the average layperson comes to the period, which of course stretches, depending on how you want to count it, almost a thousand years, and there are so many misconceptions that have been popularized in, in movies and in songs in classrooms. You know, the world was not bring out your dead. Everything was miserable. There's so many medieval myths. So you have encountered far more than I have, especially in a professional setting. So, so let's go through the litany of the ones, not the ones that you hate because we would be here a week, but the, the top, let's say the top five medieval myths that just set your teeth on edge that you would like to crush the ignorance from. Okay. Um, well, I think the first one is that, as you mentioned, the period is a thousand years. And so at a very basic level, there is no one middle ages. There's differences in time and differences in culture and region and geography. And all of those things make a, make for a diversity that I don't think people associate with the period. But beyond that sort of periodization problem, the biggest myth, I think, is that everything was dirty and awful. I think we have this image in our head, and maybe it's a, you know, it's certainly a, a movie pop culture image. It's a Monty Python image, right, of people rolling around in the dirt and tied to the land, and everything is miserable uh, and drab. They're covered in filth, and, and yeah. it's always mud. Mm -hmm. and Yeah, it's always mud. It's always raining. I don't know if you watched the the Witcher series that was popular earlier this summer, but well, of course I did. Okay. <laughs> Everything is it's always dark and kind of sepia toned and wet, and nothing could have been further from the truth if we're going to generalize about that thousand years. Medieval people bathed; they knew about hygiene on some some you know non scientific revolution method. And so I don't, I, I think that's, that's the big one, you know, that medieval people weren't filthy, smelly, well, maybe by our standards they were, but, you know, weren't, weren't filthier than any other right, society. Right. And they, they, they took regular baths, they painted things, the, maybe that's the second myth, that everything was monochrome. Everything, all the stone buildings were stone, right? They were, but they were brightly painted. If you Google search medieval cathedrals painted, you'll see reconstructions of what medieval buildings, churches you know, would have looked like at the time. And they're, they're almost gaudy by our standards. Uh, this would have been true of the classical world too, of course, but everything was brightly colored, cleaned to the standards of the time, which were not as bad as we think. And that included the people. People wore bright colors. They had a sense of fashion. Uh, we know that through condemnations of fashion by both civic and church authorities. But it was not this drab, monochrome, everybody dressed in mud-covered burlap 
that we have that we have in our mind a lot of our medieval images are actually either early modern or 19th century the 19th century in particular industrial peasant life has colored our vision of peasants throughout time and that misery that we associate with peasant existence is much more appropriate to later periods than to the middle ages well, and you know, you're, you're even using one of those words. Again, we're talking about a thousand years across a continent plus. Mm-hmm. Even the word peasant has so many modern cultural connotations that I think that you might want to take a couple of minutes to even dig that one out for people. Sure. I think that uh, the way medievalists use peasant is as a statement about power that a peasant was somebody who didn't control their own labor, probably didn't own their own land, although they, they could, but whose life agricultural life was at the whim of somebody else, a manor lord in our classical understanding of memorialism, an urban absentee landlord who owned land and the product of it. So the way we would use it, or the way I would use it at least, is as a statement about power, a rural agricultural laborer who didn't control their own labor for the most part. And yet there was a large class that that did the yeoman, at least in England, and I think in other places too, especially Germany, you've got a lot of, maybe not freeholds, but at least they have more control than a peasant. Yeah, and you see that coming in the later Middle Ages especially. We talk about the golden age of the peasant in the 50 or 70 years after, after the plague, at the end of the 14th and beginning of the 15th century, when, when peasants were able to own or claim ownership of land, were able to control their own labor, uh, that erodes as you get closer to the 16th century. But but there are times, the 6th and 7th century in the early Middle Ages, the late 14th and early 15th century in the later Middle Ages, where you see peasants with, you know, our laborers, I guess, with freedom of, of mobility, control of their labor, the ability to, to sell that labor or to uh, sell the product of that labor with much greater freedom than you would see in in other periods. So what else have we got? What else do we need to to crush today in terms of yeah, I think the, the, dirt, the dirt and the, the ignorance, I think, is, is a big problem for medieval people. I think the idea that people never moved more than, you know, five or ten miles from where they lived, the mobility of medieval society is often underestimated. We know that, well, merchants obviously travel, but we know that people travel. They travel for, for agricultural reasons, to take produce to markets or to town, market towns. They travel for religious reasons, to go on pilgrimage, even if it's just a local one, to a cathedral rather than to a parish church. There is a large segment of the population that is involved in pastoral activity. And so they would move herds, not just from field to field, from, you know, from summer pasture to winter pasture, but especially on the borders of mountainous regions uh, across mountains. Um, You see a lot of that. It's called transhumance. And you see a lot of it in the Pyrenees region of southern France and northern Spain where people would spend part of the year in lowland areas, part in highland areas, and then part down in a different lowland area uh, at the end of the year. So I think that that mobility in the open world that that implies is a great one of our great underestimations about the Middle Ages. People weren't trapped in their villages necessarily, especially during those periods we just talked about of greater freedom. They weren't trapped in their villages. They didn't only know what they could see around them and never left to explore, to experience other, uh, other things. And so the, 
the sort of broad world that we associate with mobility is, again, much more applicable to the Middle Ages uh, than it is to later periods, the 15th century and into the early modern period, when mobility of, of lower class people and then by the 19th century as well, when their mobility was more greatly restricted by, uh, by power relations. That last thing you said about power relation, there was control of territory, but I think the modern concept of borders was, well, it wasn't the modern concept, let's just say that. And, no. and people were, you know, the, the fluidity of just being able to say, well, uh, you know, we're going to go over there. There's no border patrol. There's no customs fees, unless you're tax- actually talking about ports. They could just wander all over Europe. Yeah, the idea of borders is not a medieval one. It's a border or fixed borders, at least. Borders were, were movable, were contestable. They didn't really exist, as you say, for, for people below a certain social level. You would pay taxes and fees to go in and out of a city to go in and out of a port. But other than that, uh, you had freedom of movement and mobility and migration much more than, than we do today. It's a border, not a borderless society, but it is a society where, where the idea of border and power, the way they're linked together for us, just didn't, didn't seem to exist. So here's another one. And I, for our English-speaking audience, I think they're going to be guilty of this. And I have mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I'm very guilty of this. The medieval period was England. That, yeah, England or, or England and France. Yeah. And, and, and again, that's, that's me. You know, when I was, because when you're young, you have access to the ink works in English. Right. That's what they're going to focus on. Well, it's also our old Western Sib narrative. You know, as it was taught, I didn't have it as an undergrad. I actually had a world history narrative, but that was very uncommon for the time. But by the time you get to the end of the first half of the Western civilization course in most places, you're talking about England and France, the Hundred Years' War, the, you know, all of the Northern and Western European stuff. And maybe you mention the Holy Roman Empire as a mess, right, as a sort of bad example of of medieval governance. And maybe you talk a little bit, if you have a professor who's interested in economics about the Hansa and the Hanseatic League in, in the, the far north of Europe, but, but it's an England and France narrative to set up constitutionalism, parliamentary monarchy versus absolute monarchy. It sort of sets up the early modern period to talk about England and France almost exclusively. There's, as I said, I think just a little bit ago, there is no real middle ages. It's a thousand years and a multicultural, multi-ethnic society that it's hard to generalize about. Right. But so, you know, this, and we're getting a little bit off topic, but can you, can you speak to, to such a society spread over time and place and languages? You know, how important was the church and specifically the quasi-universality of Latin? Yeah, and it becomes uh, less important over time, or at least less prominent over time. There's there's great debate about this, as as you might imagine, but there's some pretty good evidence, I think, at least evidence that convinces me that uh, up until the 10th century, people who could understand Latin could understand each other across the span of Europe, that the Romance vernaculars hadn't diverged enough yet to make Latin incomprehensible to those speakers, that that Latin kind of unified the early Middle Ages culturally in a way that the emergence of distinct vernaculars in the later Middle Ages prevented. And Latin became became an elite language, incomprehensible to ordinary people. A lot of the complaints we think about with uh, Luther and the Bible and the vernacular and all of that stems from that, that big change where Latin was no longer, even if 
if only partially comprehensible to ordinary people. And it's not that Luther was the first one to, to talk about biblical vernaculars, but that sort of instinct in the, in the pushback on the Latinate church comes from that shift in, uh, in everyday language. And so for the early Middle Ages, there is a cultural unity that the later Middle Ages seems to lack with the disappearance of the comprehensibility of Latin. So here's another one. Let me blindside you with this one. If you were going to pick one myth about the Crusades to yell about, which one would you yell the most about? Oh, I have lots of lot of bad, <laughs> lots of bad that I've already um, Okay, the, the one myth. Okay, I've got two that go together. Well, listen, and you know what? This is a great, let me, you know, make a note uh, for our listeners and for myself. Maybe we need to do another episode that's just the Crusades. Sure. Um, we'll definitely do that. But anyway. I've got, I've got, yeah, I've got lots to say about that. Um, yeah. Okay, so here's my, my one cheating, bringing in a second myth. And that is that the Crusades was about the Eastern Mediterranean and Islam. And that nothing could be further from the truth. That crusading in the way that I understand it, is not, is not about Christianity versus Islam. And it's not about that, I guess the second myth then is that the Crusades is this sort of defensive measure to check the spread of Islam out of the Eastern Mediterranean. Crusading, the way I think about it and, and teach it, is a mentality that's part of 11th, 12th, and 13th century Europe. And my, my counter-argument to the, you know, the Crusades is about the clash of religious civilizations um, is that the Crusades are, of course, not limited to the Eastern Mediterranean, that there are Crusades in Spain, there are Crusades in the Baltic regions, there are Crusades in the south of France by the 12th and by the 13th century. So, so this idea that crusading is somehow wrapped up with Christianity versus Islam is a myth that we would do well to just forget about completely. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing to it at all, that crusading is an outgrowth of uh, what R.I. Moore is called a persecutorial mentality in, uh, in Western Europe, starting in the middle of the 11th century. And it applies to everybody who can be defined as an enemy, not just to Muslims living in the Eastern Mediterranean. Well, you know what? I've seen El Cid, and therefore I know that you're wrong. Oh, that I'm wrong. <laughs> no. You're wrong, yes. <laughs> it's all about God versus God. No, that, that's, yeah. you know, that's one of the, you're right, that's one of the things that it's always cast in this, religious perspective there's so much more to it and there's certainly a religious basis to oh, sure yeah wrapped up in in well the theology develops after the event which is another interesting aspect of the crusades but but it's all kind of wrapped up with religious theology but the idea that the target is islam is the part that's really wrong the target is whoever can be defined as an enemy of the community of the faithful Including other faithful, other Christians, the Albigensian crusade in the South of France is the one that, that really hammers it home for me. I mean, it's, it's people saying, no, we're Christians too. And church and secular authorities saying, well, no, you're the wrong kind. Right. So we're going to kill you. We'll fix that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> um, that's why I think crusading is kind of part of the European set of mental equipment. In, in the crusading period, rather than an expression of, you know, an expansionist Islam or, you know, a Christian desire to recapture Jerusalem. That rhetoric's all there, but, but it's a symptom, right? Not the, not the cause. Right. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah, there's so many. And, you know, the role, oh, this, again, this is another whole episode, is the role of the church in 
again, quote unquote, medieval society. And force for good, force for evil simply was, it's just, it weaves through everything in the period. And it's no monolithic thing. And it's, it's just so multifaceted that, I mean, it affects everything, wouldn't you say? It's yeah, I think so. And I, I think, again, this is that difficulty of generalizing that we've been talking about. There are times when people seem very obedient and Christian Catholic, I guess, at the time, you know, for the uh, and conformists. But there's so much heterodoxy in the medieval period. Okay, wait, define the term for those who are listening now. Sure, heterodoxy <laughs> means a, a multiplicity of beliefs, orthodoxy, one or one correct belief. And we tend to think about the Middle Ages as a time of orthodoxy. The church was all powerful. It had one consistent interpretation of Christianity, and it bludgeoned the people with it until they just gave up, stopped being thinking sentient beings, and went along with whatever the church said. Again, as a, as a myth that, that works perfectly as, as a part of the way we understand the Middle Ages, there's nothing to it. People were were their own people. They had agency. Maybe that's the, the another huge myth that people had no agency, that they were kind of buffeted by forces beyond their control. And that, that of course, just isn't true. People thought for themselves. And a lot of times what they did and said and how they acted doesn't match what we find in sort of official ecclesiastical sources, church sources. All right. We're getting, we're getting close to the end, but so let okay. me hit you with one more. So of all okay. the, the myths that bug you, of course, they all have their sources in a lot of different things. And probably one of the most predominant sources is popular culture. So what one thing from, from popular culture do you think is the largest center in terms of perpetuating these? Uh, you know, what, what movie, what TV show, what book or series of books just, just makes think, you shake? You know, I think it isn't one thing. I think it's, it's kind of where we started. I think it's the atmospheric Middle Ages that's presented the drab, muddy, dirty, backwards. I think that medieval atmosphere, that trope that shows up in so many of the, the pop culture manifestations of the Middle Ages, that if that were to change, then I think some of our understanding just in general of the period would change. If, if villages weren't always muddy, if they, uh, <laughs> they weren't always full of filth, if cathedrals were painted in the way they would have been, you know, if if the, the material culture was expressed as we know it existed, I think we would see, see a different just baseline understanding of the Middle Ages. If it was presented as multicultural, multi-ethnic, brightly colored, vibrant, and alive, instead of kind of grayed out or sepia or, or this kind of, you know, everybody with their head down and their hair wet and their clothes dirty. I think that would, that would fundamentally change the way even pop culture. I mean, that, that bothers me more than you know, factual inaccuracies or people doing and saying things they would have never said and done. Uh, I think it's that, that sort of atmospheric Middle Ages that, that's the biggest problem for me. Yeah, trope, man, tropes are hard to kill. Yeah, and I think, though, pop culture can kill them. You know, if, if all of the medieval movies or movies set in a quasi-medieval setting were different atmospherically, if they had a different color palette, if they, you know, gave off a different aesthetic, I think than our understanding of the Middle Ages. When people heard the word medieval, they'd think brightly painted cathedral instead of gray stone and brown, muddy people. Well, hopefully the people listening today will take a, a new look at things and start to consider and research about the medieval period and how rich it was and how much of what they think they know 
are things to unlearn. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a fantastic conversation. I just, I forget that we're recording because I could just go on and on with you. This is such a, this is such a cool topic. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate the, the time and the invitation to join you again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, folks, that is it for us at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure and keep tuning in to Then Again that should come out uh, at least once a week now. Uh, we're back from, from a quasi hiatus. So keep following us on Facebook. You can see our events and, and a lot of our digital media will show up there. You can go to our website and get more information about us. We hope to see you soon or at least have you take part in some of, of our virtual programs. But until we can be with you next time, please stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.